and a pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast, episode 16 coming at you. Lots to cover this week. It's a big action-packed edition here of your flagship Mets Marais podcast. Sam Lebowitz joined by Jack Hendon. Jack, we got a lot to cover today. It's an exciting day for the podcast. So what do we got on tap? We got a deluxe, supersized episode of Mets podcasting. We got uh, we got some some rants to revisit uh, because James McCann is coming to the Mets for four years. Uh, hopefully, the cat won't come in this time. Uh, although we're fans of the of cats on the podcast, so we have uh, obviously we have Porter coming in. Uh, that's a much more universally celebrated decision, I think. But once we get our uh, ducks in a row, we have a good 30 plus minutes of interview time with Josh Hedgeka, who, if you don't know about him, you're gonna know about him. You better know about him sooner rather than later. He's a right-handed reliever in the Mets farm system who throws from a very weird sidearm submarine angle that uh can't really you, you kind of just have to see it uh we'll put some video we'll try and embed some video in the uh mesmerized post so you can get a better taste for this but he is one of the more intriguing names uh he's had great numbers obviously he didn't play in 2020 no minor leaguers played in 2020 but uh he is an analytics buff he's done a lot of hard you know a lot of work to get here uh a D3 product, but he has earned every ounce of this uh, opportunity to pitch for the, you know, for the Mets minor league teams. So we're really looking forward to talking to him. We'll yeah. And we'll, and we'll talk more about Josh as we, uh, as we approach our, our interview with him. But before we, we get into that, let's talk James McCann and let's talk Jared Porter. So first of all, we talked a lot about James McCann last week, so we're not going to go too, too in depth on what we think about this deal. Cause I think we made our opinions on, on James McCann as a player and the rumored four-year contract pretty clear, but it is looking like a four-year deal in the neighborhood of $40 million is in the cards. Uh, it is not official as of recording this podcast on, on Sunday evening, uh, but widely reported and widely confirmed as something that is definitely going to happen pending a physical. Um, so it is, on the one yard line, uh, so to speak, it's on the goal line. It is going to happen. James McCann will be a Met. Uh, the only thing that we haven't gotten yet is that official, uh, you know, Instagram post from at yeah. Mets. No staying. press conference yet. No Photoshop job yet. But but yeah. we'll get it uh, because James McCann is going to be a Met. We don't have a, a confirmed monetary amount either, but widely reported again in the $40 million range, which means he's going to be getting about $10 million per year on a four-year guaranteed deal. Mm-hmm. You know, I made my opinions very clear about this. I think four years is too much, and I think $10 million a year is too much. I think in the long term, it doesn't ultimately hurt you that much because it's not a terribly expensive deal, but this is a guy who – I think MLB trade rumors had him getting like 220 and he doubled that and two for 20, I should say two years, 20 million or so. And he, he yeah. doubled that. And I, it, he's never played in more than 118 games in a season and yeah, he's not a bad player, but I think at the end of the day, you're getting like probably an off uh, an average offensive catcher who, you know, hasn't really done it for a full season before. And the defense, like, probably improved than where it was when he was getting non-tendered by the Tigers, but 
you know, we, yeah. we don't really know because it was 30 games this year. It's a four-year contract. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a commitment of time. Uh, and I think the good thing for us is $10 million is probably a little bit more than I would have given a player like James McCann, but it also is not, I think if we were in under a different regime right about now, this would have been like the, the premier offseason move that the Mets would have made. And it would have, you know, reduced our budget by about like 33%. Uh, now we still are hearing about George Springer. Uh, we're still hearing about Trevor Bauer a little bit, although not to the same uh, volume that we have with Springer. I mean, the Mets are still very much in the hunt to improve this team in a lot of different areas. So, I mean, I'm just going to hope that they don't take the second best option at other positions because McCann definitely was the second best option here. Uh, makes it really interesting to see what JT Real Muto is going to get too. Cause I would have assumed that McCann would have sat until he became the best catcher option on the market, but that's not happening. He's going to be a mad, the Met players like it a lot. I know McNeil is posting about it on Twitter. Stroman posted about it on uh, Twitter. They really, I, the, maybe the analysts know something that we just don't know or don't have access to about his defense or the line drive hard hit rates, but it's um, it's there's no doubt. It's definitely a gamble. Um, I mean, we've, we've there's been a claim for this deal, and there's been kind of some uh, the opposite of a claim criticism. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, McNeil is going to be happy about this because he grew up with McCann, and you know Strowman was you know made a post about him being excited about this too, and and he's he's heard good things about McCann, and he's a gamer behind the plate and all that stuff. So. The players seem to like it. The uh, people who are making baseball decisions, I feel like, are probably less enthusiastic about it around the league. Not necessarily with the Mets, because the Mets obviously made the move. Because uh, he's 31. He got non-tendered two years ago. He has never done it for a full season. There's There's a lot of question marks in this contract. There's a lot of putting your faith in a player who really isn't as proven as you'd like on a four-year contract. And we're just going to have to grow through this, this deal and see how it works out. And, you know, I, I may be critical of this contract, but, you know, I am hoping that James McCann proves to be a fruitful addition to this team. He's mm -hmm. our catcher now. He's, I, I want him to succeed. I'm not going to be, you know, I think people assume that when someone is critical of an acquisition or a contract, like in the past, I was critical of the JD Davis trade because I didn't like, who the you know, profile that JD Davis brought to the, the table when the Mets acquired him. Uh, I thought he, you know, couldn't hit velocity and he hit the ball on the ground too much. And so when he first started playing for the Mets in 2019, I was, here we go again, ground balls and all that. It, you know, I was critical of him, but I wasn't wishing for his downfall. I wasn't hoping that he would suck. I was hoping that he'd be successful. I want to be proven wrong here is what I'm trying to say. Definitely. I mean, it'd be nice for us. Cause we haven't, I mean, think about, how many starting catchers have the Mets had who've stuck around for four years? Like, are we counting Darno? Or I mean, obviously Piazza, but like Laduca was two years. Kevin Ploiecki wasn't a starter. Brian Schneider was like a year and a half. Like, we don't have a great history with catchers. I think that's probably part of why people are skeptical because it's the idea of a catcher holding up that long is kind of far fetched. But you know, I'm. I think there's reason to believe 
that the Mets know something here that we don't. Uh, but I only say that because of the abundance of reason going around to criticize the deal. And it's all valid reason. Like, I, I guess I'm just trying to inject a little bit of, uh, you know, placation into the, into the scenario, uh, if you will. I mean, if you look at the, the best teams in Mets history, the teams that have gotten to the pinnacle, that have gotten to that final dance in October, those World Series teams, a constant on those teams was a really solid, consistent catcher. You talk about 69 with Jerry Grody. You talk about 86 with Gary Carter. You talk about the 99-2000s teams with Piazza. And, you know, the 06 team with Leduca, like, I personally think Leduca was a bit overrated. Yeah. Uh, he had his moments for sure. And there were positives to his tenure with the Mets. He certainly wasn't a superstar or anything like that. He was like an average league average offensive player. Uh, and then Darno, like when the Mets needed Travis Darno to be healthy and a consistent contributor in 2015, he was. Mm-hmm. And he uh, worked well with pitchers too, which is the huge thing. That's like, I mean, that was for him his probably his best value, at least as far as it went when he left. And we kind of realized when the pitching started to, you know, tumble over, it was like, we really need a good framer. Like we can't do Wilson Ramos for two years. If we get, we get something better than Wilson Ramos defensively. Like, I think that's enough of a win. Like, yeah, obviously it's 10 million a year. It's four years. You're strapping in for a long time, but, uh, this was a really bad two years behind the plate and it had a lot of, uh, collateral effects. I mean, Wilson in 2019, Wilson hit, he, he did. He had his, his streaks where he was, a you know, he was carrying a load of this offense when the Mets were hot in 2019 down the stretch, when they were, you know, beating up on the nationals with that, you know, with the, the Todd Frazier game tying home run can Ford walk off shirts were getting ripped off. Wilson was a big part of that stretch. Mm-hmm. Like he, he was yeah. a, a, he was a good consistent run producer on the 2019 Mets didn't hit a lick in 2020. We know that. And the fielding was way, way worse than we thought it would be. And so any, any offense that we get in addition to someone who can actually catch the baseball and put tags down and frame and throw guys out at like a league average rate, which I think McCann is at. Turn the glove over on a slider, please. Like get on your knees on a ball in the dirt, please. Slide over, slide over to block something just be a little athletic behind the plate. Like that's, that's a positive of having McCann. I think at least in the short term, Mm -hmm. if we get around to year four of this contract, I don't know if we're going to get the same player that we're getting in year one, but you know, I I wish James McCann all the best. And, but it it is not the, the, the most exciting acquisition that we're talking about today because the Mets GM search is finally over. The Mets have a new GM. His name is Jared Porter. Uh, this deal is official as of a few hours ago. Um, widely reported last night, made official by the Mets today. Porter coming over from the Diamondbacks, where he was an assistant general manager to Mike Hazen, who is one of the uh, best GMs right now in the game, I would think. I, I have a lot of respect for Hazen. Mm-hmm. And he's a Theo Epstein guy in that he spent time with the Red Sox and their organization. Uh, and then moved to the Cubs with Theo. 
So he's got four championships under his belt, right? Yeah, sounds about right. I mean, are we, I don't know if he started in 04 or not, but it's a lot of championships. It's enough championships to like satisfy a Met fan base, I think. He's got at least two rings with the Red Sox and he's got his Cubs ring. And he's got, you know, consistent work that he did with the Diamondbacks to the point where he's highly respected mm-hmm. across the game. When this was getting reported last night or on Saturday night, um, there were quotes coming out from people around the league praising this move, praising Porter, saying that this guy is a winner. He is a great communicator. He is a caring individual. He is extremely smart and extremely competent. And he is a guy that was going to be a GM somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I had him pegged as a GM candidate back in September when I did an article on um, potential GM candidates. He was like the fourth guy I had on my list. And I'm happy to see that he's the guy who wound up getting it because he is a great candidate for this job. And I really think they got it right after weeks, after months of, of questioning, are they even going to get a guy worth hiring? Like, they absolutely did. This worked out for the Mets in the long term. Obviously, we got to see what he actually does on the job. But in terms of the optics of the hiring itself, Porter's great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the other thing about it, too, is that he has connections. Like, a guy who's worked with Mike Hazen knows people who have worked for him. Uh, eventually, Porter's going to have some kind of say in who works in his front office. Uh, obviously, he's still reporting to Sandy Alderson, but it's more encouraging in my mind to have somebody who's come from a winning background and a winning culture uh, making decisions about who's going to help him cultivate that kind of culture, who's going to help him put a good process together as they uh, as, as, uh, as the wise man says, um, it's, you know, I, uh, I'm excited about it though. I mean, it's, it's, and it seems like ultimately the Mets kind of got what they wanted. I mean, in December, the beginning of the month, like it seemed like the GM search was slipping away from us like really badly. Like we had Michael Hill and nobody else was even talking. Um, I think they really did a good job speeding things up and, getting someone picked out. And I also don't think Porter would have come aboard if he were like so vehemently opposed to giving a player like James McCann four years and $40 million. Like there has to be, I think some common line of thinking between him and Alderson that uh, is going to translate well. Then again, I don't, you know, I'm, I've never worked in a front office. I don't know how far it, it, it extends, but it's, it's a lot better, I think, than just saying like, fine, whatever, promote, you know, former VP uh, from the Wilpon era, John Rico or, or someone like that. And that's not, to, that's not a, you know, that's not to take away from John Rico, but I think that ultimately we want as many new faces as we can get alongside someone like Rico and ultimately you know, with Sandy. Right. And, and I mean, of the guys that, that we heard, you know, names floated out, I feel like Porter definitely has the resume. Absolutely. He has the resume. He worked his way up through the Red Sox system. I, th- I feel like I read that he started there as an intern in like 2005. So he might not have been there for the first championship, mm-hmm. but the dude's 40 years old yeah. and he's been 
you know, he's got this resume. Like, this is impressive. It's an impressive resume. He's probably the most, like, hireable guy mm-hmm. of the guys they interviewed in terms of uh, not having to worry about a, you know, president of baseball operations title. Like, there were guys who I absolutely wanted who were hireable. But the problem was is that they were already in a GM role. So they weren't going to make those lateral moves. So this was an, a, a promotion for Porter with an opportunity he's young enough so that this could be a role that he just kind of rolls with. He just kind of goes with and and becomes the guy who leads this front office for years to come and eventually steps into that president of baseball operations role. If things go well here, which I have no, really no concern here because this is a a young, smart, analytically uh, inclined guy Mm -hmm. who he has nothing but respect around the game. I've yet to hear a bad thing about this move. And, you know, it, honestly, it's just, it's exciting. It's exciting. He's a guy I, I wanted in this front office and he's, it's exciting to have him. Absolutely. It's, it's, and all, yeah, I think the players respecting him too. I think that's a really important point. I mean, there's no reason to believe that players didn't respect uh, people from past regimes. Like we just don't have information like that, but Porter is somebody who's been around. He's been on the, field with other players like you know before batting practice he's somebody who I think players like to talk about numbers with they like to talk baseball with he's not a suit with a computer and he's also not um you know like a a puppet for owners like I think this is a very transparent and uh honest process that that they're conducting and uh it's a breath of fresh air because it's not Usually we're not talking about uh, things that make sense uh, during that off seasons. So but this makes sense. And one thing that might not make sense is watching Josh Hedgeka pitch because he is not your average everyday pitcher. And that's a bit of an awkward transition. I apologize for that. But what I meant to, you know, get us into is the, the meat and potatoes of this episode, which was talking to Josh Hedgeka who, if you're not familiar, I wouldn't blame you because he's not very much a household name. Josh is a Mets minor leaguer. He is a relief pitcher. He is a submariner. uh, And he is a uh, Johns Hopkins University graduate who was not drafted by the Mets, but came to the Mets by way of a a post-draft signing in 2019. Uh, He was a College World Series all-tournament team all-star in 2019. Uh, their all-time saves leader at Johns Hopkins. Single season leader in appearances with 25. He pitched 77 in the third innings that year. So he was out there. He said to us during this interview, three, four innings in appearance. Um, he went on after he get, didn't get drafted. He went on to a, uh, a small independent league team, which he'll tell you about. And the Mets signed him there after he spent uh, time in Kingsport before getting promoted to Brooklyn, 22 games, 1.33 ERA. Crazy, crazy year in 2019 for Hedgeka. He's super analytically inclined. He's super interesting to listen, talk. And this kid is, for someone who throws funky and only throws in the mid-80s with a slider, there's a lot to be excited about here because he gets guys out. He gets guys out and he throws strikes and, you know, we're excited to, to have you guys get to know Josh. Like we had a chance to here. Yeah. 
And we are now joined by the bespectacled submariner, Josh Hedgka. Josh, thank you for joining us, man. How are you? Good. Sam, Jack, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, Jack and I have that Centennial Conference connection. Uh, he, him going to Haverford. I'm from uh, Johns Hopkins University. So, you know, it's, it's nice to get some Centennial Conference love in the baseball world. Yeah. My last memory of watching a baseball game in person was watching this guy throw a complete game shutout against us to end our season. But I'm not bitter about it. Uh, I'm very happy to be doing this. Uh, Josh is uh, a pretty Im impressive uh, relief pitcher in the Mets system right now. Uh, he's, you've done a lot of work to get here. Uh, work that I think a lot of players wouldn't even be smart enough to consider doing uh, things beyond the grain of uh, working out and eating right and putting in long hours. Uh, Josh, you've also been uh, marketing yourself uh, digitally to get out there. Is it true? Is this is the story true here that I'm reading from Jacob Resnick that you sent yeah. 600 connections via LinkedIn? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned before, with the Centennial Conference connection, the Centennial Conference is a Division Three conference, and unfortunately, Division Three baseball is a bit underscouted. And you know, as a Division Three baseball player, I wasn't even talking to very many scouts going into my senior year uh, of college. And I obviously wanted to keep playing professionally. And being a computer science major, I decided to make a website for myself where I could compile all of my information, my stats, my videos, upcoming games, stuff like that. So I'd have one common location that um, scouts and you know anybody else associated with the professional team could go to if they wanted to see my information. Um, you know, this was a lot, it was a lot easier than you know if someone reached out instead of having to say, okay, here's this video, here's this video, here's my stats, here's my upcoming games. I could just have it all in one spot. And then my dad and I were actually talking, and we were like, okay, so why just wait for a scout to reach out to me? Why don't I be proactive and you know go after the scouts myself? So. My dad helped me a lot with this. What we ended up doing was we went through every professional baseball team's website and found a list of all their analysts, scouts, front office members, basically anybody we could find associated with a major league baseball team that was publicly listed online. Um, I found all their names and I tried to connect with basically all of them on LinkedIn. It was probably like the number you said, about 600 people. Um, and I honestly only got about a, a dozen or so, maybe a couple dozen responses. Uh, I basically just sent a quick message, you know, when I sent my connection saying, hey, my name is Josh Hedgeka. I want to keep playing professionally after I'm done with college. Here's my website. Um, and if they connected, I would send a longer and more in-depth message telling them when my next game was and stuff like that. So this was still going on during my senior year of college. Actually, one of the people I connected with was named Brian Hayes, who was a, a scout with the Mets. And um, at the time, he was just like, thanks for sending this over, Josh. I'll pass this along to other people in our scouting department. Um, good luck with the rest of your career. So obviously I come, the draft comes and goes in June. Um, I don't get drafted, unfortunately. Um, so I continue playing in an independent league in Utica, Michigan called the United Shores League. And a couple of weeks into the league, um, I was having, I was, I was putting up some pretty good numbers in the league and Brian reached back out to me on LinkedIn. And he basically said, you know, Hey, Josh, um, I passed along your information to our professional scouting de department and they're interested in signing you. And, you know, it was, it was just one of the best, best days of my life. Um, it was really surreal. And, um, you know, it was, it was just a culmination of all the hard work and stuff that I put into that point. Um, so I guess, I guess 
Uh, I don't know exactly what into it, what went into it or whether there were scouts that had known me beforehand um, before Brian had reached out to them um, with the Mets. But, you know, I think part of the part of the work that I put in um, reaching out to scouts and stuff like that before the draft ended up paying off after I got signed um, out of the United Shore League. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just do researching you and fin- figuring out about the, the LinkedIn stuff and the fact that you've done a couple interviews here at Metsmerize and you're getting your stuff out there and the analytical stuff, which we want to talk about because this, the stuff you're working on with Rapsodo and, and uh, your, your pitch design is super interesting, but something that's been clear to me in researching you is that you are not afraid to put yourself out there and make things happen to your, for yourself. And, and, you know, I kind of wonder if you were, fairly undersized coming up through, through, you know, high school baseball and all that stuff. And I kind of wonder if you almost had a chip on your shoulder, you know, working towards this ultimate goal of playing pro baseball. Yeah. I mean, coming out of high school, I, I was definitely undersized. I didn't throw very hard. Um, I mean, that's part of the reason I started throwing sidearm submarine in the first place is, you know, I didn't get appearances in high school. Um, I talked to my pitch, my, uh, my high school coach, Tony DeMar, and basically said, hey, man, like, I want to pitch. Like, how do I do it? And he was honest with me. He's like, we have three guys ahead of you that are all D1 talents. And you're probably not going to pitch that much. You might be like a, a reliever when we need you. But, you know, in high school, everyone pitches six, seven innings a game, you know. Um, so he suggested that I start throwing sidearm submarine. And, um, you know, but there is there was definitely an aspect of, you know, I want to, I want to be out there and I want to dominate and I don't like being the fourth option, you know, and I kind of going out there and trying to prove myself and really, really show that, you know, I worked my ass off and I really want to um, show that I did and that I was successful. And, um, you know, I, th- so throughout my high school career, that's kind of what happened. And then, but then going out of high school and going into college, I was only recruited by division three schools. And obviously there's nothing wrong with that. Like I said before, division three is very under um, underrated, I think. And, you know, I, I had like a, a preferred walk on at a, a D2 and a D1. And, you know, I think going to a division three school, I was able to play sooner and play right away and get that valuable in-game experience of, you know, pitching in pressure situations, pitching, pitching against older guys, guys who are better than me. Um, and I think that was super valuable um, going to that, going to division three and experiencing that. And I was able to, you know, really, um, like you said, kind of have something to prove. And um, I think it's I, like, I would love to be, obviously I'd love to play professional uh, major league baseball. Um, and like being one of the few D3 guys to make it there would be, would be really awesome just because, you know, a lot of guys who make it are guys who high draft picks. They were known to be really talented out of high school, known to be really talented out of college. So being one of those guys who kind of made it on, um, you know, really hard work and dedication and stuff like that. And not to say that everyone else doesn't work hard and is dedicated, but um, kind of someone who was, wasn't supposed to make it, if that makes sense. Does it, uh, I mean, does it still feel like you're, you know, living kind of like in this, in this dream for you, or is it, uh, has it sort of materialized and, and translated into more work you think? It's really weird, you know, just, I mean, I don't know if this is exactly what you're asking, but hearing you uh, before the interview mention that this is the first time you guys are interviewing a professional baseball player. Like it still doesn't really like register to me sometimes, you know, um, there's like, there's other times I wake up and, you know, I have my, my spring training hat from the Mets. Um, and I'm like, 
I didn't have to buy this. This was given to me. Like right. I, I, I earned this, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's pretty cool. It's like a weird feeling that you don't, it doesn't, it doesn't sink in and it hasn't really sunk in. Um, especially because I didn't always know that this was going to be a reality. So it's just, it's still weird waking up some days and realizing that, you know, I am a, a player in the Mets organization. Like that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the hard work and the, the dedication that goes into it, I don't, I like to think that not much has changed, you know, that I'm still, um, you know, obviously now that it's my job, I have a little bit more time. Um, I don't have to worry about class and school and stuff like that, but I like to think that I'm dedicating myself just as much as I had in the past. Yeah. And you're off to a great start, man. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. Your, your ERA just across Kingsport and Brooklyn is sparkling so far and the walk rate is great. And obviously for someone who doesn't throw very, very hard, that's a huge part of what's going to get you to that next level. Uh, so talking about like how you improve yourself when you're, you know, one of these guys who's coming up, who's not a hotly contested, like a, a, a prospect that gets talked a lot about uh, and analytics are something that you devote a lot of time and energy towards and researching yourself and, you know, computer science, like you mentioned, being a computer science major in college, I just got finished up with a computer science class and I'm not a computer science major. And just like learning how to code in Python, that was yeah. I hated it. I did 105 and I was like, no more. Like this is sensory overload. Like I'm not smart enough for this, but. So to be fair, I kind of felt the same way after my first programming class and it, it, it comes with time. Yeah. I'm a journalism guy. Like I'm studying, <laughs> that is so not from the number. I don't do numbers. I do words, but like you seem to do the numbers part. And and we have a friend who used to write at Mets Marais. His name is Matt Mancuso. He's super interested in pitch design. So I know he would be really you know, he'd be mad at me if we didn't talk about analytics and how you're adding, uh, you know, horizontal movement to your slider and to your two seamer and vertical movement to your changeup. And can you just uh, sure. kind of walk us through how, you know, how you're, you know, adding movement to your pitches and, and how you're learning about tunneling and, and all that stuff. So I think one thing that casual fans may not know about, um, they hear a lot of these numbers and stats, um, you know, spin rate and vertical movement and horizontal movement and spin axis and stuff like that. Um, you know, they kind of just have a baseline understanding, um, from what those terms being thrown around on Twitter and on broadcast and stuff like that. Um, but as someone who's in the baseball world, it's, uh, there's a lot of technology and innovation that has allowed us to, um, really develop a better way of improving players. Right. So, um, the, when I college got, uh, a rap Soto, my junior year of college, you know, I had never seen one of those before. I had, I had no idea what it was. I knew that like spin rate and movement and stuff like that were a thing. I didn't know what a rap soda was. And basically it's just this device that you plop down between the catcher and the pitcher. And it's a super high speed camera with radar built in and you connect it to an iPad. And every time you throw a pitch, it'll tell you velocity, spin rate, how much your pitch is moving in the horizontal direction and vertical direction, what the percentage of active spin is which basically means spin that isn't um gyro spin so basically the amount of spin that contributes to the movement of the ball gyro spin like spin like a football or spin like a bullet doesn't contribute to the movement of the ball and that's why you see you know a perfect perfectly thrown football with a spiral it doesn't tail it doesn't drop it it just it kind of just follows along its path um so that it'll tell you what percent of the spin um is in the gyro direction and which one what percent of the spin is not and it'll tell you basically where you release the ball and stuff like that too so having access to this information, it sounds like a lot. And, you know, my first time using it, I didn't really understand what it all meant. 
Um, but over time and using it cons consistently, um, it, it becomes very clear that this information is like miles above what we had before in terms of developing pitches and getting an objective measurement of what each pitch is doing. So as I mentioned in my interview with Mike, you know, something I'm trying to do with my fastball is bump up the spin efficiency a little bit. Um, because like, as I said, spin efficiency, when it's not a hundred, so when it's not a hundred percent, you're basically decreasing the amount of movement your pitch is getting. So a hundred percent spin efficient fastball is going to move the most it possibly can. Um, if you're throwing a pitch at, for example, 50% spin efficiency, it's only going to move about half as much as it possibly could if you're fully efficient, just, just simply by how you release the ball and how the, um, the ball is spinning out of your hand. So my fastball right now is about 90% efficient. Um, I'm thinking if I can bump that up, you know, five, five percent or so and get a couple more inches of movement on that fastball. Um, and my, so the way my fastball is because I'm a sidearm pitcher, I'm basically moving it. The pitch is basically moving all horizontally and not vertically. Um, so for when I'm talking about my slider, I want my slider to do the exact same thing, but in the opposite direction. Um, so right now my slider is getting a little bit of vertical break. Um, so I'm trying to fine tune it using stuff like the Rapsodo to, um, to get that instant feedback every time I throw a pitch that, okay, what is this pitch doing? Is it moving up a little bit? Okay, it's moving down a little bit. No, I want it to be exactly horizontal and I wanna get the exact same opposite movement as my fastball. Um, and the way you can do that, and it's, it, when your next question might be, you know, how do you go about adding movement or changing the movement of- um, That was exactly pitch. my next question. Right. So that's something you can kind of just do by feel, like you're playing around with the pitch and saying like, okay, I, I see that this pitch is moving in this direction instead of this direction. You know, I'm just gonna play around with a different grip. I'm gonna play around with my wrist positioning and see what works. Um, there's also a tool now that we can use to objectify um, or get objective measurements of what we're doing when we release the ball. And that's stuff like the uh, Edgertronic camera, the Raps Rapsodo has its own high speed camera now. And basically these are just super high frame rate, slow motion cameras that you can see exactly what your hand is doing when you release it. So if I see that, you know, the ball's kind of slipping out of my hand and that's why it's moving in a different direction than I want, I can basically say, okay, how do I want my exact wrist position to be? How do I want my exact finger position to be when I release the ball? And then I can do it again and see, okay, did it work? Did it, did the adjustment I made, you know, look better, number one, and then using the Rapsodo, did it actually create the movement that I want? So it's basically leveraging these different technology, these different technologies and tools to basically produce exactly what you want instead of just going by, oh, that looked good, that, you know, a batter, a batter in the batter's box saying like, oh, that was sharp, you know, but now we can actually quantify exactly what a pitch is doing and how it's moving and it's like really interesting to hear you talk about this because the Mets generally have not been one of the leading teams in analytics and I think they only really got their hands on Rapsoda technology relatively recently compared to the rest of the league and now with Jared Porter coming into the organization like this is exciting to hear not only a player talking about this but legitimately believing that an organ this organization is going to be like heading in that direction and utilizing this technology, it's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, I think the key thing is getting people bought in on it and understanding why it can be beneficial. And that's why I think, you know, Ricky Meinhold, who's our minor league pitching coordinator, he's been doing an amazing job at, you know, for guys who I was lucky enough that I had been through this before. I had experienced a lot of this stuff and I understood the, 
the rep Soto stuff and what it meant. Um, but a lot of players in the organization may not have, especially, you know, the ones coming out of high school, um, stuff like that. And Ricky and uh, Mike Cather have been doing a great job at really teaching guys exactly what the, what this stuff means, how to have a plan in terms of developing our arsenals and um, explaining it to guys who may not understand. So they've been, they've been doing a great job in that regard. Right. And so with you personally, as a pitcher, you're talking about, first of all, having plus command is important so that you can actually make sure you know where the ball is going. But second of all, with the two primary pitches that you have with the fastball and the slider, you're talking about two pitches that come out of an awkward arm angle for hitters to pick up coming out of the same kind of arm angle. Cause you want that release point to be consistent. And they're, you're talking about having to cover 40 inches of the plate from one end to another. And it's, you just can't do that if you're a hitter. And you, is that right. what makes you think, successful? And I think, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, you know, I think like you mentioned, having to cover such a wide area of the plate from two pitches that look like they're coming out of the same um, exact tunnel is pretty difficult to do as a hitter. And that's, you know, that's why I'm actively working towards that with those pitches. Um, I also think just having a low arm slot in general is something that batters just don't practice as much, you know, pitching machines aren't set up at two feet, nine inches off the ground or whatever, whatever it is. My release point is it's about, it's about that, uh, about three feet. Um, so pitching machines just simply aren't set up at that angle. They're not used to seeing balls that move horizontally and not vertically. Um, so I think just even, the advantage of not of hitters not having practiced that that um, that arm slot or you know balls moving that way before uh, gives me an advantage for sure. Um, and I say I think developing a third pitch that changeup that I was talking about in the interview with Mike, you know I think having a changeup that kind of goes down would just give me another look that you know hitters can't just sit on a pitch. You know they'll have to expect or they'll have to be ready for pitches that move in three separate directions, which I think is you know even trickier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that just calls to my mind the, you know, the work that the Tampa Bay Rays do in terms of how their pitchers are all throwing from different arm slots and they're all throwing different pitches with different, um, you know, planes of movement. I mean, that's, that's stuff that's immensely useful to have on your roster. Um, You know, somebody who really challenges that framework. And obviously, I mean, it's, it's going to be talked about, I think, for a long time. You'll have to answer the question as to how you develop this delivery for like the rest of your life, probably. So we won't, you know, make you spill about that. But I would imagine just because of how unique your delivery is, I mean, it's essentially a sidearm, uh, but it, it verges on submarine. It's extremely unique. I don't really think there's any pitcher that uh, you can pin it to exactly. And I think it's the same for each you know, Adam Sinber's style is much different from Steve Ciszek's style. It's not like they throw funny, they're the same, like they're obviously not the same. But, you know, with that in mind, I'd have to imagine just for you, obviously analytics have helped you uh, in hashing out how you want to throw your pitches. But do you ever, I guess, feel that because of how unique your style is, that it's almost, it, it presents a, a sort of disadvantage because it's hard for other people to give you that kind of feedback because they're not used to like the anatomy of your style of throwing. I mean, I don't, I, I realize this is sort of uh, a framing of like, well, what is it like to be so weird? And I, I don't, you know, I don't want you to feel that, that way at all. No, I, I, I definitely know what you're saying. And I think, um, I think you're definitely onto something because, you know, in college, I never really got some of the mechanical instruction that my other teammates got. 
um, my my pitching coach was straight up with me. He's like, you know, I don't know exactly what to do with you. You're you seem to have a pretty good feel for what you're doing, but you know, I don't really know how to teach the sidearm delivery um, any as opposed to you know a more traditional over the top delivery. Um, so I, that's why I was super excited when I found out about sidearm nation camps, um, which I mentioned I think in the interview with Mike as well, mm-hmm. where it's run by a guy named Jeff Freeborn, who was an old pitcher for, uh, I don't, I don't remember exactly. I think he may have pitched for team Canada on the world baseball classic. Um, and he, he basically started these camps for sidearm pitchers, sidearm and submarine pitchers. And I went to one after my freshman year of college, uh, actually right before my sophomore year. And it was the first time in my life that I had gotten like exact instruction on different mechanical things I could be working on, um, different pitches I could be throwing stuff like that from people who have actually done it. At, uh, at, at that point, it was like there were major leaguers there, um, former major leaguers there um, for the first one I went to. And um, so that was awesome. And I, I changed up some things in my delivery. I ended up getting a better feel for, for you know, what I was doing. I actually used to pitch on the third base side of the rubber. Um, and if you can imagine that, you know, coming from far third base side of the rubber as a righty mm-hmm. sidearm guy, basically as far out to the side as I can possibly get, you know, it was, it was probably a pretty crazy look for a lot of right-handed batters. Yeah. Um, coming basically from behind them. Um, but the problem was, I think I hit like eight guys in like 20 innings or something like that. It was just, I was just constantly hitting batters. I was constantly missing that inside fastball and, you know, against lefties, it kind of gave them a better, um, a better eye line on the pitch because they got to see it for longer. So after that, after that camp, um, they suggested that I move over to the first base side of the rubber, ended up having a lot more success pounding that inside part of the plate against righties. Um, and I had a bit more success against lefties as well. And um, so that was just cool that I got to talk to people who I knew were also going through the same things that I was going through, trying to figure out how to figure out these mechanics, people who actually knew what they were doing in terms of um, teaching submarine mechanics. And not, I'm not trying to um, talk bad about my, my coaches at Hopkins. I obviously love them. Um, but it was just cool getting it straight from people who had, who had done it at a higher level. Um, and then I went to a second camp with Chad Bradford, who, um, who went, who taught me some extra stuff as well. Um, and that was a great experience for sure. Right. And Mets fans will remember Chad Bradford. He was a member of that 2006 team. Uh, baseball fans will know him as one of the, you know, the misfit toys, so to speak on the Moneyball team of the A's in the early two thousands. And he was like pretty much as, as extreme as they came in terms of side armor. He, he scraped his knuckles against the ground for the most part. Um, so yeah, he was really... significantly lower. He was significantly lower than anybody I've ever seen. Like he's significantly lower than I am. And um, even like the Tyler Rogers on, uh, on the giants, he's, he's probably even lower than Rogers is. The Velo was really cool to pick his brain. The Velo was like, I mean, there were some days I think where Bradford would get like 80, he top out at like 81 miles per hour, but it worked like with the, the angle he was throwing at, it was like just so unheard of. Um, so we should talk about this for a second. Um, so Josh, your career in 2019 has a really uh, like amazing art to it, I think. Uh, so you essentially, as I've lived every day in my life knowing this, you showed up after like 24 relief appearances in the championship game of the Centennial Conference, and you threw a complete game shutout against my Haverford team. Uh, that's all we're going to say about that. Because uh, I think it's actually more impressive what you did after that. Uh, you basically show up to your next uh, your next start against Farmingdale State, and you threw another complete game. 
And then you toss nine, oh, more than nine innings against Babson the following start. And then you went into indie ball and then you get the call like three, four weeks later from a Mets scout and you sign with the Mets. And then you're pitching in two minor league systems uh, between Brooklyn and Brooklyn. That's a lot of work. Uh, that's a crazy timeline. That's, I think, I mean, we all know relievers are weird and they operate on weird clocks, but that's a lot of different roles to be throwing in and a lot of different, you know, places like geographically, uh, you know, mentally, I'd imagine. Is it, I mean, how did all that work, you know, shape the way you approach your, your everyday mindset now as a professional? Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty crazy year, but probably the best year of my life so far, honestly, um, all things considered, you know, my, after my sophomore year, I played summer ball in the Cal Ripken league in the um, mid Atlantic region. And I actually started in the mid Atlantic, uh, in the Cal Ripken league. Um, I was an all-star. I had a really good season and I came back to Hopkins and I basically, you know, begged my coach, like, let me be a starter. Um, I ended up getting hurt my junior year of college. So they had to use me in more of a limited relief role. Um, and then my senior year of college, you know, still, still, you know, getting the ear of my coach, trying to, uh, trying to get that starting role. Um, the coach thought, my coach thought I'd be better served um, in a relief appearance. And basically what I did my entire senior year was basically pitch three, four innings out of the pen um, most games or like most close games. So I would come in, you know, in a one run game in the sixth and I'd pitch the rest of the game. So kind of, kind of a hybrid between the two where, you know, I wasn't starting games, um, but I wasn't being used in just like a couple out roll or one inning role, um, which for me, you know, I wanted to pitch every inning. Like I, I, if I could have pitched every inning in college, I, if I had my way, I would have pitched every inning in college um, or and and professionally as well. But I just, I just want to be on the mound as much as possible. Um, so going into that senior year, going into the Centennial Conference Tournament, um, you know, I, I think there was a rain delay or something like that where I wasn't, I wasn't originally scheduled to be the starter. Um, but I think there's a couple days of rain that pushed the game back. So I was, I was on full rest for my last relief appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, and coach Babb gave me the start against Haverford. Um, and it, Haverford was a pretty good matchup for me. Um, cause I get a lot of ground balls and, um, you know, the Haverford lineup, you know, I think according to our scouting reports, he had, had a lot of ground balls in the season, didn't have as many fly balls. Um, so it was a pretty good matchup for me and I was pretty successful that Centennial Conference championship game. Um, and then I got, I was lucky enough to get another start um, in the, in the regional and then in the world series. Um, but like you said, going back to different, you know, different roles and stuff like that. For, like I said, for me, I I'm going into every game day wanting to pitch every inning of that game. So, you know, if I only end up pitching one inning or two innings, you know, that's fine. Um, but I'm prepared to go nine innings, at least in college, I was, I'm, I'm prepared to go every inning of that game. Um, obviously professionally, I'm not going to be a starter and, um, you know, I, as much as I want to be, I just don't think that'll ever happen. And, uh, going into the Mets organization, you know, I knew I could just, I knew each day I was going to be pitching one or two innings. Um, so I still try to carry that same mindset of, you know, I want to be on the field as much as possible. And throughout my preparation, the day before the day of, um, during the game, I tried to maintain the same preparation that I would have had you know, in college with that mindset. Um, but then obviously I only would end up pitching one or two innings and, you know, it's pretty 
interesting going, being able to only pitch one or two innings while having that um, desire to like pitch the whole game. And I think only focusing on those one or two innings, I'm able to kind of, um, I think I am able to throw a little bit harder and I think I am able to, you know, tap into some of the more um, intense part of my pitching mindset and stuff like that for such a, for a shorter period of time. So I think that may have, I mean, if you look at my stats, I had better stats in, in single a last year or two years ago, whatever, 2019. Um, than I did, than I did in like the Centennial conference in my senior year of college. Um, so I think that, I think that's something to be said about the different roles that I had. And I was able to, you know, tap into my intensity and tap into my, um, you know, that tough mindset for a shorter period of time, um, which I think definitely helped. And so you had that whirlwind of a 2019 and, you know, you, you dominate in, in the low minors in Kingsport and Brooklyn, you had a sub two across both levels, ERA. And then the world stops in 2020 and you didn't have a season. So what is, what was your summer like? How did you, you know, stay sharp? How did you mentally, you know, keep yourself active as an athlete? Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's first year of my life where I haven't been playing baseball since, you know, since I started playing. So like four or five years old, um, it's, it was, it's obviously it's a hard year for a lot of people for, more serious reasons than it was for me. Um, but, you know, I, I, this year I really tried to dedicate myself to building up my mental game um, because it would have been really easy for me to kind of take that time off for me to, you know, not want to do anything and just say like, okay, well, like this year's a wash. Let's, let's just focus on next year. Um, but, you know, I, I really wanted to look at this period of time off as a way to, as a time where I could really focus on improving on the things that I had worked on the previous off season and continue working on things that I hadn't worked on the previous off season. Cause I didn't have the time, didn't have, you know, the whatever. Um, so I was able to kind of work on some things mechanically that I hadn't had the chance to work to in the previous off season. Um, so I think my mechanics are in a much better place now than they were, you know, at the beginning of at what the, would have been the beginning of this season. And, you know, mentally, like I said, I, I think I'm in a place where I'm much more disciplined. I'm much more able to focus even when things are tough. Um, you know, one of the things I did was basically print out these lists every day of the four or five things that I wanted to do. And if I would have done, if I did every one of those things every single day, I knew for a fact I'd be a better person and a better baseball player the day after, you know, work out, do my throwing, do my mobility exercises, read, um, journal, you know, listen to a new album every day. So just kind of things that, you know, make me a more well-rounded person that I want to be and a more well-rounded baseball player that I want to be. And, you know, once you have these things hanging on your wall and you have five days in a row of highlighting everything, like you're not going to want to, no matter how shitty you're feeling, no matter how, um, how lazy you're feeling that day, you're going to want to do everything you can to make sure that you finish everything that day. So you don't break the streak. You don't, you know, because then you look back the next day and you're like, well, you know, I ruined this, I ruined the streak yesterday. Um, so I think that was a really good motivator for me. Um, and it just kind of built up, you know, after a while, it wasn't even, that wasn't even the motivation anymore. It was just a habit, you know? So I'm just building up these habits inside of me, um, to help me be more disciplined and get everything done that I need to get done every day, which I think was super valuable to have this time to do that. Um, instead of just kind of treating it as a wash and doing nothing for six months. All right, man. So you, you've given us a great 
you know, good chunk of your, your time here. You've, we've been talking to you for like 30, 35 minutes. So before we, you know, close out for the week, one thing that we like to do here on the, the pleasant good evening podcast is remember some, some dudes, uh, usually former Mets, but whoever you got in mind, um, let's go down the line and let's remember some guys. So Josh, who are we remembering this week? You know, I think, uh, I think Chad Bradford is probably going to be my pick today. Uh, he is a former Met, as you mentioned. I mentioned him earlier. Um, submarining legend, you know, showed up in Moneyball, uh, was one of the big parts of that Moneyball team for the Oakland A's. And, you know, he taught me a changeup. He taught me some things about the mental game. So, you know, I think that's probably going to be my, my pick for today. I am remembering a dude in the same vein, although I'm going a little more obscure, but certainly definitely on brand for this episode. I'm remembering Greg Burke, who pitched for the Mets in 2013, and he was not very good, but he was also a, a kind of a submariner, sidearm dude, uh, 32 games for the Mets, a 5.68 ERA, and he never pitched again <laughs> in the major league. So uh, same kind of, the, you know, both, both of us on brand here for, for today. Jack, who are you thinking, though? Well, I got to stay on brand then, right? I mean, Greg Burke is like, I couldn't even, he didn't even cross my mind when I was thinking about like, okay, what sidearm, you know, what sidearm submariner am I going to take? But I picked a guy who people forget was a Met. And a lot of people also say, oh, they all forget he was a Met. But people do forget he was a Met. Darren O'Day. Uh, he was a Met for like, I think a week. Uh, he was a rule five pick, if I'm not mistaken, after the 08 season. And um, he'd been like with the, I think, Anaheim Angels. And then the Mets DFA'd him. And he wasn't even bad. It was like. It was in a roster crunch. Yeah, it was a roster crunch beginning of the season. They had a lot of like weird pitchers in their minor league system around then. Like guys who were on the verge between AAA and the majors. So they gave him back to the Angels. Uh, And then he wound up with the Rangers and did some good stuff for them. And then he became an Oriole. And that's when he everyone knew who Darren O'Day was um but I'm gonna remember Darren O'Day um not well, that's my hero man. right there yeah you're here yeah, yeah that's uh I wish he'd been our hero but the Mets, a lot of Mets fans are still mad that he got cut we're we are <laughs> about that because we uh we're still waiting on that uh that that submariner since uh I guess since Bradford but and since they traded away the next the next guy coming up in Steven Villines that's right Steven Villines and they just signed Trevor Hildenberger. Is that right? Yes. He's a, he's a sidearm guy. We're trying to get Trevor on the podcast too. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Get the sidearm connection going. Yes. Yeah, pleasant, exactly. good sidearm. Put a good word in for sure. Maybe uh, connect with some of them on uh, on LinkedIn. We should get a PG LinkedIn going, Sam. That's a good idea. Um, all right. So that's all the time we got here on the 16th episode of the Pleasant Good Evening podcast for Jack Hendon, all my colleagues at Metsmerized Online, and Josh Hedgeka, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me, guys. This This was fun, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Mets fans, have a pleasant good evening.